showcasing beloved favorites and forgotten gems, this is The Archive with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network.
Yes, from Ramsgate in Kent, England, it's a very warm welcome once again to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcasts Archive Show. I am your host, Jason Drury, thanking you very much for joining us once again. Now, today's show is a kind of catch-up show, featuring important archive releases from the end of December 2021, right up to when the show is being recorded at the beginning of May 2022. As you may have noticed, we haven't had many archive shows recently because of the extraordinary amount of people who want to talk to me for my other show, Talking Soundtracks. And I thought, in between talking to even more people, I wanted to do an archive show just to, you know, keep my hand in, you know, as you know what it's like. And, um, and for the other good reason, that I enjoy doing them. And I have some great segments lined up for you. In this episode, whatever it is, from the archive on the Cinematic Sound Podcast. Now, as normal, this archive show is a two-part edition, and we kicked it off with music from the original opening version of The Q Dragon Racing from the recent Verez Sever Band release of How to Train Your Dragon 2. Yes, hot on the heels of Verez Sever Band's deluxe edition release of the original 2010 How to Train Your Dragon, last October comes the release of John Powell's wonderful, magnificently symphonic score for the 2014 sequel. Written and directed as before by Dean Dublar, based on the How to Train Your Dragon novels by Chris Cow, with a voice cast including Jay Bassuel, Gerald Butler, Craig Ferguson, and including new names such as Kate Blanchett and Kit Harrington. As before, Powell creates a splendid, gloriously symphonic score enhanced with Irish instrumentation. A true equal to his splendid Academy Award nominated score for the original Dragon film. The score, as before, is as deep and rich in the classical tradition, while conveying emotion and nuance for modern audiences, particularly around the joy of flight. In the first film, a hapless young Viking named Hiccup inspires to hunt dragons, but becomes an unlikely friend of a young dragon himself, and learns that there be more to the creatures than he assumed. The second film takes place five years later when Hiccup and Toothless, his young dragon friend, discover an ice cave that is home to hundreds of new wild dragons and find herself in the centre of a battle to protect the peace. Powell described the project as a, quote, a maturation story and stated that he too tried to achieve the same maturation in the structure of his music by developing further every aspect of his compositions from the first film. In an interview with Randall Larson for Soundtracks, Powell elaborated on this approach. Quote, The thing about the second one was, is that the characters grew up and I needed the score to grow up a bit too. I needed new themes, but I also needed to honour the first movie's themes. So I was very careful about where I used the old themes where I used the new themes. I tried to be precise about what the themes were for. I allowed the score to have the same nature, the same heart, the same colour that the first one did, but made sure that the new themes had purpose, and that the old themes had purpose when we needed to hear them again. They weren't in there because they were tempting and everyone was used to it, which honestly is sometimes unfortunately the case. When you get a second film, it can be very easily messed up because there's a lot of good will brought from the first film to the second film. You should be trying to be as careful with the second film, I think, 
as you certainly were about the first film and give as much energy and care. Unquote. Well, there is no doubt this film is an equal to the score of the first film. And in fact, all three films are an immensely enjoyable trilogy of films enhanced by some absolutely immense music by John Powell. If there is any evidence that John Powell is one of the top composers in the film music industry today, just listen to the three scores back to back and you will know why. If you purchase this release, I am sure it will be on rotation on your system for a long, long time. So here now is more music from the 2014 sequel, How to Train Your Dragon 2. Original score composed by John Powell.
That was music from the 2014 film How to Drain Your Dragon 2. Original score composed by John Powell, with the orchestra conducted by Gavin Greenaway. The original soundtrack recording was released as a deluxe edition in March 2022 in a two-disc set by Verez Saraband Records and should be a new essential part of your soundtrack collection. This is The Archive with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. A notice appeared in The Hollywood Reporter on February 15th, 1957, announcing that George Montgomery had signed Alan Milner to produce and direct Black Patch, then titled Decision at Sundown. Original screenplay by character actor Leo Gordon, scheduled to begin filming on March the 25th. There is no mention of a composer, but even if there was, there would have been not much attention. Some may even say, who this Goldsmith guy? And a few professionals might have thought, hmm, Goldsmith, he's done a decent work at CBS and Review, this could be interesting. That would be one hell of an understatement, as Black Patch would be Jerry Goldsmith's first feature motion picture score, and he would soon emerge as a major voice on the film music scene. In short order, not just a great composer, but an icon and a legend. Jerry Goldsmith had known, ever since he saw a cinema showing of Spellbound, that he would become a film composer. Goldsmith already had, as I said, seven years of experience writing for television at CBS and Review and was more than prepared to tackle his first ever motion picture film score. Goldsmith's score would be musically sophisticated, dramatically assured and expertly crafted to the film's needs. Just like all of the composers remaining 250 plus credits which he would have in his future career. For the record, aside from George Montgomery, the film featured Sebastian Cabot, Diane Brewster and Strava Martin. There were plot concerning two former pals from the Civil War who meet again in a new Mexico town. But one of them is a town marshal and the other is a wanted bank robber. They happen both to fall in love with the same woman. The recording of Black Patch is a real milestone in itself. It was, as a lot of people know and probably contributed, it was financed completely via a Patreon account, which I myself added to to ensure this recording took place. No recording had ever been released of Black Patch. I'm not sure that an original recording actually exists away from the film. However, what did exist was Jerry Goldsmith's handwritten score for Black Patch, complete and in perfect working order. It was donated by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Margaret Henrik Library in December 1997, and was made available to Entrada Records for this brand new recording, the first presentation ever of the music outside the film. The score for Black Patch, along with a short Goldsmith score entitled The Man, was recorded in October the 12th, 2021, with the man recorded on the following day, October the 13th. The recording was mixed 
in 48-track digital audio by engineer Simon Rhodes. Reconstructed by friend of the show Lee Phillips along with Rebecca Thomas and expertly performed by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra under the baton of William Stromberg. So let's have a listen to a piece of film music history. Here is music from the re-recording of Jerry Goldsmith's first ever film score, Black Patch.
That was music from Black Patch, the 1957 Western. Original score composed by Jerry Goldsmith and re-recorded by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by William Stromberg. This important archival recording was paired with another re-recording, the score of the 1972 TV film The Man and released by Intrada Records. This is The Archive with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. The Phantom of the Opera is a 1925 American silent horror film adaptation of Gaston Leroux's 1910 novel, Le Phantom de l'Opera. Directed by Robert Julian and starring Lon Chaney in the title role of a deformed phantom who haunts the Paris Opera House, causing murder and mayhem in an attempt to make the woman he loves a star. The film remains most famous for Chaney's ghostly self-devised makeup, which has kept a studio secret until the film's premiere when it was released in November the 15th, 1925. Now this film, even though it was a silent film, did have an original score and it was composed by a man called Gustav Hinrichs. In recent years, a number of modern composers have tried to rescore Phantom of the Opera. In 1996 came Carl Davis. Earlier, the late Roy Budd rescored Phantom of the Opera in 1993 and was released on CD in 2014 and had its first performance in 2017, the soundtrack of which featured on my very first archive show. Remember this?
Now the latest composer to tackle scoring this classic movie is Craig Safan, of whom recently I have had the pleasure of talking to for Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. In a recent interview for this release, Craig Safan described how he went about scoring Phantom. Quote, My new score for the Phantom of the Opera is for symphony, orchestra, organ and two vocalists. I tried to keep within the time period of the original book by Gustave Leroux, 1880 Paris. However, I also added a more modern touch. So the music doesn't quite sound like a pastiche of Gaumont, Bizet and Farr. I brought in some French Impressionist sounds as well as some 20th century ones. The challenge to writing an hour and 20 minutes of music for a silent film is to allow the audience to hear a variety of sounds and silences. A typical contemporary film has dialogue, sound effects and music. A silent only has music and can therefore become a bit tiring to the ears. To counteract this, I've given lots of variety to the musical palette. I also tried to choose places where the music would really stand out and be noticed as well as where music would truly go in the background and subconsciously support the storyline of the film. I'm hoping the audience forgets all about the music most of the time and just enjoys this amazing film. That would be success. The score was performed live to film at Chase Park in 2019. The large orchestra was under a huge tent and there were two immense jumbotrons showing the film. An audience of around 2,000 sat under the stars looking at the film, the orchestra and the boat-filled harbour beyond. It was a magical night. Unquote. So let's now have a sample of Craig Safan's new score for the classic 1925 silent horror movie, The Phantom of the Opera.
on the air and streaming on the web since 1996, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network.
in the hundred years since the Victoria Cross was created for valour and extreme courage, beyond that normally expected of a British soldier in face of the enemy, only 1,344 have been awarded. Eleven of these were won by the defenders of the mission station at Rourke's Drift, Natal, January 22nd to the 23rd, 1879. Frederick Schies, Corporal, Natal Native Contingent. William Allen, Corporal, B Company, 2nd Battalion, 24th Foot. Fred Hitch, Private, B Company, 2nd Battalion, 24th Foot. James Langley Dalton, Acting Assistant Commissary, Army Commissariat Department. 612 John Williams, Private, B Company, 2nd Battalion, 24th Foot. 716 Robert Jones, 593 William Jones, Privates, B Company, 2nd Battalion, 24th Foot. Henry Hook, Private, B Company, 2nd Battalion, 24th Foot. James Henry Reynolds, Surgeon Major, Army Hospital Corps. Gonville Bromhead, Lieutenant, B Company, 2nd Battalion of the 24th Regiment of Foot, South Wales Borderers. John Rouse Marriott Chard, Lieutenant, Royal Engineers, Officer Commanding, Rourke's Drift. tones of Richard Burton and a wonderful rendition of Men of Harlech. That was, if you're not guessed already, music from the classic 1964 film Zulu, directed by Cyan Field and starring Stanley Baker, Jack Hawkins and introducing a certain young actor called Michael Caine with original score composed and conducted by John Barry. Released in December 2021 by Quartet Records, Remastered by friend of the show, Chris Malone. Composed when Barry had only been writing music for films for only four years and showed the world what a powerful composer of great symphonic scores he would soon become. Yes, welcome back to the archive on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. I'm Jason Drury. Hope you enjoyed the show so far. And we stay in historical mode by going further back in time to, in fact, the 9th century with the film Alfred the Great, also made in the 60s, this time in 1969. A film which portrayed the king's struggle to defend the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex from a Dutch Viking invasion. Directed by Clive Donner, the film starred David Hemmings in the title role with Michael York, Pula Ransom, Colin Brakeley, Ian McKellen, Peter Vaughan 
Alan Dolby and Julian Glover, another strong British cast. Now, MGM at the time did not have much faith in the film, do well at the box office. So basically remained a backseat drive on the production because they were not sure if it would appeal to a wider audience. Like, who would want to see a film about a king whose claim to fame was burning cakes? Hmm? If it looked as if it was going to do modestly well, the studio more likely would have replaced the composer, Raymond Lippert, and had a more high-profile Hollywood or British film composer to write the score. But luckily for us, Lepard stayed on board, and his score is now perceived as a classic piece of movie music history. Being regal and atmospheric, with some wonderful acting cues. Lepard was not a film composer per se, and focused mainly upon music for the concert hall. As well as being a composer, he was also an accomplished harpsichord player and a talented and in-demand conductor. His works for cinema were few and far between, and Alfred the Great was his only truly original score. His other contributions to film, such as Lords of the Flies in 1963, being adaptations of classical music and conducting assignments. Now, the soundtrack for Alfred the Great was reissued on a bootleg in Germany on the Wessex label and was sold as a promotional copy, not for resale. It contained 13 tracks from the score and included Lepard's Lord of the Flies, which was reconstructed to just one cue, with a running time of just two minutes at the end of a 35-minute CD release. The sound quality was really dull and distorted, but collectors added to their collection because the soundtrack had become so rare. Now, this newly mastered release from the Critcherland label contains 16 cues, 14 from the score, and two bonus tracks, which are film versions of certain tracks. Compared to the other release, the sound quality is excellent, and it is an absolute must for any film music fan to buy, because this is a superb release by sometimes a very underrated label. So, here now is music from the 1969 historical epic Alfred the Great, with original score composed and conducted by Raymond Lepard.
Jazz music from the 1969 historical epic Alfred the Great, with a visual score composed and conducted by Raymond Lepard. The original soundtrack recording of this wonderful archival release, which I cannot recommend more, is available from Critchland Records. And I hope I pronounced that correctly. Critchland Records. <laughs> This is The Archive with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Fire in the Sky is a 1993 biopic science fiction mystery film directed by Robert Liederman and adapted by Tracy Torme based on Travis Walton's book The Walton Experience which describes an extraterrestrial abduction. The film starred D.B. Sweeney as Walton and Robert Patrick as his best friend and future brother-in-law, Mike Rogers. James Garner, Craig Sheffer, Scott McDonald, Henry Thomas and Peter Berg also star. Now, Fire in the Sky's Sense of the Uncanny was reinforced by the score by Mark Esham. It blended synthesised atmospheres with orchestral Americana and contemporary sounding percussion, creating a sensation of mystery and a sympathetic portrayal of both Travis Walton and Mike Rogers, who bear the brunt of suspicion and emotional turmoil of Walton's disappearance. Esham's background in ambient electronic music and his more recent baptism into orchestral scoring both played important roles in the score for Fire in the Sky. In 2020, for the recent Intrada release, Isham pointed out that what he thought the project required, quote, a strong background in electronic music and sound design and really sort of modern, strange things. On the other hand, there's a really warm emotional side to this, a human side that required a more traditional orchestral approach. I would take the mornings and work on the human aspect and then take the afternoon to get the spaceship. You have these two very disparative elements, and one is forcing a reaction in the other, and that's a great challenge for a composer. Unquote. Fire in the Sky afforded a lot of room for Isham's music to breathe and contribute to the film. Now the film's climatic set piece is scored with a 12 minute cue from Isham entitled Evil Spirits from the Sky. In his 2020 interview, Isham acknowledged that the extended abduction sequence was his key challenge on the project. Quote, there's that one long, long sequence at the back act of the film which we actually see the actual events and I attacked that almost immediately because it had to be at least 10 to 15 minute scene. And it's all music from beginning to end. And that's the sort of thing a composer dreams about in a good and in a bad way. It's a tremendous undertaking. It's a tremendous piece of work. It's a tremendous volume of work to make a piece of music sustain that long and sustain interest and drama and integrity as a composition. So I began that piece almost immediately because I knew that it would take most of the length of the production time. I had to get it to where everyone liked it." Unquote. Now in his liner notes for this release, Jeff Bond gives us a detailed account of what appears on screen during this 12 minute cue. A ghostly three note motif plays in almost flute-like tones in the early part of the sequence as Walton floats inside the cocoon chamber and struggles to pierce its translucent skin. 
and when he breaks free and flips out into the zero gravity of the massive chamber, Isham maintains the hollow atmosphere, avoiding almost the temptation to score the startling action with large-scale dramatic music. When Walton flips downward in a long fall and winds up in another cocoon, this one accompanied by a human corpse, Isham adds clanking hollow percussion strikes. Then a glassy four-note synthesizer motif again playing subtly and distantly, accompanied by roaring semi-vocal sounds for Walton's visually dramatic climb upward through the vast chamber. Hissing synth glissandos underscore the sight of what first appear to be bug-eyed alien bodies, but are soon revealed to be spacesuits when examined by Walton. When an occupied suit and his alien wearer grouse Walton from behind, Esham adds clunks of percussion for the struggle, on Walton kicking the attacker behind in zero-g. When Walton flees the alien through a series of tubes, Esham adds a panicked layer of fast-paced synth percussion that continues as Walton is grabbed and hauled on his way to an alien examination room. Screaming and affixed to the examination table by a sheet of white organic skin, Walton struggles while several leathery black-eyed aliens examine and probe him with strange metallic instruments, and Esham's music takes on a methodical, mechanistic pulse, then devolves into more hauntingly quiet ambient roars that play against Walton's terror. Finally, a heartbeat-like metallic pulse begins to accelerate as an overhead machine lowers and prepares to poke a needle into Walton's eye, reaching a terrifying crescendo just as the metal probe is about to stab its human subject. Quote, Rob was pretty interested in taking cinematic liberties with that ultimate scene, Ethan said in the 2020 interview. Rob intimated that this was a movie and we were going to up the ante and we were going to push it and he wanted to terrify the audience. There's a moment where the probing needle is going into the eyeball as the ending to the scene and he wanted the build to this to be relentless and to just not give anyone any hope. Let's just go for the juggler here and be relentless." Unquote. Unquote. So now let's hear Evil Spirits from the Sky, this 12 minutes tour de force by Mark Esham from his score for the 1993 science fiction mystery biopic Fire in the Sky.
That was the cue Evil Spirits from the Sky from Mark Eastham's score for the 1993 science fiction mystery biopic Fire in the Sky. The original soundtrack recording was released in a remastered and extended form early in 2022 by Intrada Records. So now Sally we have come to the end of part one of this edition of the Archive on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. Before I continue I must say a big thank you to John Mansell for his assistance on the How Fit the Great segment and that the Archive theme music was composed by David Cosina. To play us out today is appropriately an end credit piece from another recent release from Intrada. And don't worry 
more labels would get involved in part two. But once I knew this was going to be released, I had to get this on the show. It's from Miklas Roscher's last ever film score, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, the 1982 neo-noir mystery comedy film directed and co-written and co-starring Carl Reiner and co-written by and starring Steve Martin. The film co-starred Rachel Ward. The film is both a parody of and a homage to film noir and the pulp detective films of the 1940s. It is partly a collage, as it were, incorporating clips from 19 vintage films combined with new footage of Martin and other actors similarly shot in black and white. With the result that the original footage and acting of the classic films become part of a completely different story. The title refers to Martin's character telling a story of a woman obsessed with plaid in a scene that amazingly was ultimately cut from the film. Now as Rolster noted in the second edition of his memoir A Double Life, Quote, comedies had never been much in my line. Unquote. For comic moments in otherwise dramatic films, he tended to rely on solo Calaranetto Bassoon and then hurry back to the love theme or the villain's motif. But he was able to write the perfect score for Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid by being completely serious. Dead serious. Many critics said that Russia found the ideal sound for Dead Men don't wear plaid by returning to his musical style of the 1940s film noir but that was really oversimplified first the composer just couldn't really return because he never abandoned that style he just expanded it with the rich modular characterizations of his MGM costume dramas and religious epics but it stayed with him in virtually every intervening score. So in 1982, he didn't need to go back to 1943 to find the right character. The music does feel at times closer in the style of his more recent pictures, such as Time After Time, Eye of the Needle and Last Embrace, than the films such as Double Indemnity, Spellbound or Lost Weekend. It didn't matter because the Russia style, even in 1982, was exactly what the film quiet. The end credit piece we will play for you shows off Rush's score to great effect and for a musical piece it is a fitting swan song to an illustrious career of one of the great golden age film composers. So to end part one of this edition of the archive on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast here is the end credits to the 1982 comedy neo-war Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid the original score composed by Miklas Roscher with the orchestra conducted by Lee Holdridge. The complete score is available as part of a two CD set from Intrada Records. I do hope you've enjoyed part one of this edition of the archive on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. Part two will be with you very, very shortly. But until then, for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the show, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter, at Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and from wherever you're listening to us today, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the show. While you're at it, head over to TeePublic to find yourself a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt and support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>